Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Cormor and Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kenz, and today, Lindsay, Pools, and I will be continuing our reread of The Cuckoo's Calling, covering chapters 9 through 11 of part 2. As always, please be aware that our discussion of The Cuckoo's Calling will reference the ending of this book, as well as subsequent books in the series, up to and including Troubled Blood. Before we get started, though, let's go over some Troubled Blood filming news and an awesome listener response we got recently. Yeah, well, the first bit of news we have is a possible update on the number of pages for the Ink Black Heart. I see Pools is doing a little dance. I'm so right excited. Now. <laughs> I'm so excited. Something we're all obsessing over. So yeah. I just want to say thank you to Vanessa or at VRoss713 on Twitter for tipping us off to this. I know we mentioned last time that the Brazilian publishers said 900 pages, but. Amazon, at least in the U.S., has now changed the page number from the 944 pages that it's been at to 976 pages. Hmm. We have no official confirmation, but I can't see why they change it if there wasn't a reason to, you know, that does this mean the editing could be done? I think I speak for all of us when I say I sure hope so. Like seriously, the days can't go by fast enough. And Mm -hmm. also by the time that this comes out, we'll only have around like maybe three months, I think, until we get the cover art and the synopsis, if we're going by the same timeline as Troubled Blood, which came out four months after the announcement of both of those things last time. I love the idea that this book could be pushing a thousand pages. Yeah. Like I said before, I want this book to be able to kill a man if I (laughs) slap him in the head with it. So this is good news. Super exciting. If it's that long, like we don't even know how much time in the book passes in the book. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. If it's not like a whole year long, like it It made sense for the book to be that long when it's covering a whole year last time. But if it covers a shorter period of time like that, oh my God, there's going to be so much stuff happening in this book. Oh, I'm I'm so so excited. excited. One other thing that we want to mention about Amazon and the page count. (laughs) If you have pre-ordered the book, like all three of us did, or if you're going to order it on Amazon, go take a look at your order and check the page count because all three of us accidentally pre-ordered the large print edition which is a whopping 1,536 pages, or at least that's what it says right now. So it caused a little confusion because I thought the page number had changed again, but that didn't seem very realistic. But luckily our friends at the Rolling Library figured it out pretty quickly and I was able to redo my pre-order. So just a bit of a PSA to make sure that you're ordering the one you want. Also a side note, I don't know if it was the same for you guys, but the regular print ended up being cheaper than the large print too. So definitely double check wherever you pre-ordered the book from, especially if you did so from Amazon. I'm not sure if it's an issue with Waterstones or any other book retailer online, but for Amazon, definitely double check. I didn't even notice that. I was just like a new strike book, take all my money. Just take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I pre-ordered it the instant it was announced mm-hmm. and on Same. Amazon, of course. I'm fairly certain it didn't say large print then. Yeah, I didn't notice that either. I think it changed the default maybe or something. Yeah, so just go check if you have a pre-order to make sure you're getting the one that you want. So several people in the strike fandom made the trek out to Skegness to take pictures of the filming happening there, which is super exciting. Shout out to every one of you <laughs> because I know it was super cold there. And it's definitely helping us get through the drought until we get new information on Ink Blackheart. I was loving seeing all the pictures that we were getting, especially the one of them on the beach. I think my response on Twitter was like, this picture might kill me. (laughs) I'm still alive, but you know, it was a close call. 
Oh, ditto. So the pictures of Tom and Holiday Strike and Robin sitting close next to each other near the beach were the most adorable things. And I cannot wait to see the finished product. Yeah, same. I also loved, and I didn't really expect them to completely redo the hotel to look like the Allardis. I thought they'd just use a hotel. So it was great to see the white and blue of the Allardis. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Yeah. I grinned as soon as I saw it. That hotel yeah. is exactly what I thought it would look like. And yeah, you know, it's a really great feeling when you see something in a book adaptation that makes you just go, yes, like this is it. Yeah. And also seeing the Land Rover makes me just feel all warm and fuzzy. It's really like a character on its own, isn't it? Oh, it for sure is. And from what I've heard, apparently they used the old Land Rover from Career of Evil for this rather than the one that they used for Lethal White. It's not a huge detail, but it's something that I have seen brought up for sure. I didn't realize they were even different. Although maybe they should have used the one from Lethal White because this one broke down one day. Did you see those pictures, Ken? Oh, I did. I did. Yeah, I think it's just like a slight color difference. And then Mm. the license plate number is different. So like I was saying, they're pretty minor differences, but I've definitely seen people talk about it. I wonder if they realized that people noticed that the cars were different. I don't think I ever would have noticed, but I'm not surprised that other people did. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I do. I just really want to shout out Strike fans and Bill for making the trip and please go check out strikefans.com. And if you don't already follow Bill on Twitter, he's at Fan, and go check out all the pictures. And there should be posts too on the site that where he talks about the whole experience. And he's actually posted about three days so far. And we'll make sure to include the direct links to the post where he talks about exactly what happened while he was around for the filming in the episode description. So you can see it and read it all for yourself. And during all of this, you know, hubbub about the stuff going on in Skegness, we did receive confirmation of the actors for both present day and past Steve Douthwaite. So Jack Morris, interesting name, mm-hmm. is young Douthwaite and Robin Asquith is present day Douthwaite. And I just have to say, Robin Asquith seems like the nicest man and so much fun. He's posted some pictures on his Twitter account and Bill got a chance to meet him and said he was absolutely wonderful and welcoming. So that just makes me really happy to hear and really excited to see everything come together. Yeah. He seems like a hoot. I'd like to have a drink with him. He seems, or I know. <laughs> he seems like a fun guy. Another one of the things that we found out was that the inside of the Allardus has been decorated for Christmas, which indicates that there's going to be some potential changes to the plot. I love Christmas. Oh, me too. I am not super fussed personally if they switch stuff around like time-wise for the case, as long as they get the basic premise of the plot and then kind of include the high points, the Strike and Robin stuff, because that's really what I care about. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way. As far as the timeline and it being Christmas and Skegness, It does make sense to me that they'd have to condense the timeline. I mean, first, because they can't make the weather not be the weather. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's a whole host of reasons for why. But my current idea is that Strike goes to Cornwall for Christmas, and maybe that's when Joan dies. And then he and Robin meet in Skegness because there's a scene at the train station and then drive home together. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. Man, that would really pack an emotional wallop. And I am so ready for it. There's also been talk because Laybourne was in Skegness, and I feel like some of the talk may be jumping the gun a little bit because just because they're filming something in Skegness doesn't mean that it will be in Skegness in the show. So I think we know that they use the Skegness courthouse as the police station, and someone had a great theory that they simply use the bar inside the hotel to film Strike and Laybourne meeting to go over the case, you know, so I think that's a really smart theory. 
Yeah, totally. That makes sense. I really like that. We did also hear from one of the producers of the show that it might come out early next year rather than around August as we had originally expected. We haven't seen any official announcement from the BBC saying it's been delayed as far as I'm aware, but it's still a bit of a bummer. I was kind of hoping we could get a whole month filled with strike like we did for Lethal White's TV adaptation and the release of Troubled Blood, but I guess you can't always get what you want. At least it'll tide us over after Ink Black Heart inevitably destroys all of us emotionally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as much as I love the strike fest like we talked about, I think we can all take a page from Pools' book here and enjoy yeah. them separately. Yeah. And let's be honest, by the time August comes around and we all have that book, we're going to be fine. We're going to be perfectly fine with our new massive strike book, you know? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I feel selfish for liking this news, for liking no, that the I, show's going to be more spaced out because I know everyone is so excited for it, but I'm like, Yes, I've got time to digest the book. We'll have time to digest the show. I'm easily overwhelmed. I think it's perfectly fair to feel that way. And mm -hmm. it does make sense because they filmed Lethal White. I believe it was starting September of 2019. Mm. It did take about a year. So if they had planned on doing it earlier and something happened, you know. Yeah. We just have to go with the flow. And and like I said, we're going to be fine come August. Be so excited. <laughs> One last thing, you might be wondering why we're only talking about Skegness and not Cornwall. We do record all of our episodes about two weeks in advance. So we realize that by the time you're listening, we'll probably all have seen pictures from Cornwall. But again, bear with us. We'll have to talk about those on the next episode because it hasn't happened for us yet. You're all listening from the future. Mm -hmm. But like Ken said about listener feedback, we do have an email that we wanted to read that we got a couple weeks ago that we all really enjoyed. So there's a couple things from it that we wanted to share. And this is from Laura in Fort Worth, Texas. She says, I love your theory that Gillespie killed Leda. Though you've got me worried about both Ted and Schenker as suspects too. In rereading chapter seven, I noticed that Leda's very short-lived marriage to Mr. Strike is discussed, and he's referenced as being a, quote, ghostly figure in Cormoran's life. It'd be very like J.K.R. to mention him once and then bring up the character back in some crucial plot point. I'd love to hear whether you think he'll crop up again, and how, as Leda's killer, Cormoran's real father despite the Rokeby DNA test, a pseudonym of another character. I feel like after Pools' Charlotte Strike Secret Twins theory, I can voice <laughs> wild guesses in a safe space. Uh, I personally love wild guesses. I'm the queen of absolutely batshit typical theories. And thank you, Laura, for appreciating Secret Twins. Not everyone does, but you, you get me. In regarding Strike Senior, I think that he is relevant primarily because of of why Leda married him. Mm -hmm. I feel like there are revelations coming about Corman's maternal grandparents and why Leda wanted to escape and Ted seemed to have a strange relationship with them. So it's just a hunch that the reason she ran away to marry Strike Senior is going to be important and that's how maybe he'll come up again. I don't think that the timeline matches up to have Strike be Corman's real father unless there's mm -hmm. some revelation we haven't seen yet where he came back into her life, which could be the case. I'm definitely not ruling out having him turn up at some point in some kind of plot. I completely agree with you about the first Mr. Strike and that the importance there lies with the Nan Caros. But you just reminded me when you mentioned your theory, and I say that with air quotes. <laughs> yeah, I see them. Uh, we got an email a while back and they thought that the secret twins thing was my theory. Oh, hell no. No. I, exactly. <laughs> 
maybe this is the curse of two Lindsay's, but I just wanted to clear my name. That's Lindsay pools. Not this Lindsay. Yeah. That's pools theory. I own it. Yeah. I don't want it to happen. I just think it could. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Because actually, and I mean this in the nicest way possible. I sure. hate it with my whole heart sure. and both of my kidneys. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> I do want to talk about one other thing that Laura mentioned. She said, hilariously, I can contribute another cat to your list of animals with strike character names. Mine is called Margot, though I actually had her before Troubled Blood came out. So I love that. We all love Margot. And Laura, please send us a picture of your Margot. Tweet it at us or email us. And if anyone listening has a pet named after a strike character, even accidentally, please also tweet us pictures. We'd love to see them. I've had to play Stardew Valley for a discussion group that I'm in. And I named all of my goats after <laughs> Carmen Strike characters. I love it. So yeah, we've got Carmen. I start off with Carmen and Robin and Barclay. And now I've got Pat and Hutchins and Michelle <laughs> as well. I used to do that with all of the my me characters on the Wii. Yeah. If I plug in my old Wii, I have like Voldemort and Snape and, you know, of course, <laughs> Harry, Ron, Hermione. I have, nice. I have a bunch of them. Yeah. So, you know, you're playing like Wii sports and like Voldemort's up to bat. It's really funny. <laughs> that is funny. Without further ado, let's get into this set of chapters. All right. So we're going to start off with chapter nine. And in chapter nine, Strike is asking around St. Elmo's hostel regarding Rochelle. The chapter opens up on a Sunday morning and he thinks about Sundays in St. Ma's. To me, it seems like a really nice memory. Everything shut down, dinner with his family, running down to the beach with Lucy. But then we get Strike remembering something Leda had said to him. If Joan's right and I end up in hell... It'll be eternal Sunday in bloody St. Maud's. Do you think that Leda just found this kind of life so boring that she calls it hell? Or was it that St. Maud's was hell to her for other reasons? I think Leda was the type of person, from what we know of her, to need constant stimulation, constant excitement, constant change. She seems to have hated being tied down and was always chasing something. So yeah. to have enforced non-activity would be awful for her. Yeah. But I love the idea that there's also something about St. Ma's in particular she hates, like some kind of mm -hmm. dark stuff in her childhood that taints the town's memory or the town for her. Yeah. And I am, again, thinking about those revelations about Lita and Ted's parents that I have a hunch are going to show up. Stole the words right out of my mouth, Bulls. I'm very curious about Lita's childhood and exactly how many skeletons are skulking around the Nancaro family closet. Yeah, that's pretty much what I was thinking as well. It's almost like in Career of Evil when Strike walks around Whitechapel. All of those horrible memories come flooding back. I wonder mm -hmm. if it was like that for her. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Here's another question. It seems almost like Strike interrupts this happy memory with his mother's negative opinion. Do you think that in the exact opposite way that Lucy does, he kind of allows Leda's opinions to overshadow those happy memories? I don't know exactly where I'm going with this. I'm just thinking about that talk we had during the Skegness episode where letting go of his divided loyalties allows him to embrace Ted and Jones' example. I don't know. Tell hmm. me if I'm nuts. I don't think you're nuts. I totally get what you're saying. In this instance, sort of for me at least, it doesn't feel like his memory of what Leda said is interrupting or overshadowing. For me, he remembers what Sundays felt like and it does seem tinged with a bit of happy nostalgia. And then he remembers what his mother said, but we don't get any reflection on how that makes him feel or any indication that Leda's thoughts had tainted his memories. 
it seemed to me like it was just two interconnected memories. And maybe it could even be possible that he was remembering what Leda thought because it was such a contrast with his own feelings. Given that he ends this chapter happily sitting by the water in this sort of sleepy, countrified area where all the bustling shops are a hundred miles away, reading a newspaper, enjoying the peace and quiet. I don't know. I think he still has that fondness for quiet Sunday mornings, despite what Lita might have felt or said about them. I guess what I actually mean is not that this part says that all on its own, Mm. but knowing everything that we know now, it feels like the first piece of the puzzle or the first brick in the foundation that he has divided loyalties between his Mm. mother and everything at St. Ma's, at least when you look back over it. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Strike mentions Rochelle while he's on the phone with Bristow and Bristow's reaction is very interesting indeed. Mm -hmm. All of his reactions are so suspicious in hindsight. And I'll read this bit that's particularly telling. There was a moment's silence. When Bristow spoke again, the disappointment in his voice verged on annoyance. What do you want to speak to her for? Tansy's quite clear that the voice she heard from upstairs was male. I do think this is a great clue. Strike doesn't even know Rochelle's name yet, and Bristow is trying to shut it down. It suggests to me that not only does he know who she is, but he's trying to control this investigation and to control Strike. Honestly, he should know better, but I'm really glad he doesn't. <laughs> and Strike kind of unknowingly confirms Bristow's worst fears when he explains that he's not interested in her as a suspect, but as a witness. And Bristow's reaction was probably like, Well, yeah, exactly. I can't let that happen. Yeah, I was thinking that his internal monologue with a whole lot of, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, at this point. (laughs) It's also a very weak argument that Bristow gives that just because Rochelle was with Lula earlier that day, that it doesn't mean she'd know anything about later that night. I mean, it's so weak. It's so suspicious. It's so obvious that he doesn't want Strike anywhere near Rochelle. He must be so worried that Rochelle will let slip something that will clue Strike into the fact that she's blackmailing Bristow. I mean, obviously, as he should be, because as soon as Strike meets her, he begins to question where the hell she's getting all her money. I'm having so much fun this read through trying to imagine what Bristow is thinking in scenes like this. And in this particular one, I feel like he must have had some conflict because on the one hand, he's obviously desperate to keep the fact that Lula wrote a will hidden. Right. That's his primary goal. On the other, Rochelle thinks that Lula was killed by Jonah. She could have been such a convenient way to push Strike towards Lula's real brother as a suspect. But I guess Bristow must have weighed his options and decided that the money was more important and taken a gamble on Strike tracking down Jonah some other way. I guess Rochelle's just too much of a liability. She could have led Strike to Jonah, but she could have just as easily led him to Bristow, even unknowingly. Mm -hmm. So I don't think he could have risked it. Yeah, he couldn't have. Also in this phone conversation, Bristow, he excuses himself for a minute and says that he needs to find a quieter place to talk. I have to wonder if he did that to give himself a moment either to compose his emotions or to think of what to say. And when he comes back, he does steer the conversation to Duffield visiting his mother. That seems super plausible to me. So using it to think of something to say, Mm -hmm. also using the break in the conversation to sort of make that change of subject seem less abrupt than it really is, because it is a swerve, but the pause helps to disguise it. We get an important bit of information about John's mother in this section as well, when John says, The one small mercy is that mom doesn't seem to have realized who he, meaning Duffield, is. She's on immensely strong painkillers. 
Now, this is super mm-hmm. important because this fact actually allows Bristow to use his mother as an alibi. Yeah, it's definitely laying the foundation that she's so heavily medicated that she doesn't fully know what's going on around her. And maybe John doesn't have a great alibi. Mm. I really love, though, that Strike isn't thrown by any of this. He still comes back to Rochelle. He doesn't let Bristow control the conversation at all. Bristow seriously messed up hiring Strike, (laughs) thinking he could manipulate him. Like, imagine thinking you're cleverer than Corman Blue Strike, (laughs) thinking that you can outwit him. Big mistake, Bristow. Big. And he gets to think about that mistake for the rest of his life in prison. So, yay. Like we were just talking about, Bristow really tries hard throughout their conversation to throw Strike off of looking into Rochelle or why Lula had brought her along to Vashti. Do either of you think that Strike is starting to be seriously suspicious of Bristow at this point? Ooh, that's a good question. It's hard to imagine the Strike we know not finding these things suspicious, you know? Yeah, I definitely think he's taking note of this stuff. Like, it doesn't escape him. He references it later that Bristow is clumsily trying to steer him away from Rochelle, a move which will only make Strike more determined to find her. Like, so big oops, Bristow. (laughs) We know from the ending that Strike was suspicious of Bristow for a while, right? So he says Mm -hmm. that the most obvious motive from the start was the money and that Bristow benefited the most. So feels like it's not as sudden a revelation of the killer as there is in other books it's very early to start and slow growing he's piecing together the proof that it was him not trying to figure out who it was yeah but jk Rowling can't let us in (laughs) on when it happens because then it would make us suspicious and ruin the reveal yeah exactly i kind of wonder if that's why it's more likely to have that moment of revelation in in mystery books because it's Mm -hmm. harder to do it is much harder to do and she does it so well she's so good at writing these yeah we can also see how enthusiastic bristow is about strike getting his hands on the police file because as bristow says you'll be able to get some answers about the runner (laughs) i wonder if bristow actually thinks that the police have some kind of lead or info on the runner that never came out does he think that there was some pointer to jonah's identity in the footage that the police fit to follow up on but that strike could or is he just trying to get strike excited about pursuing the runner through any means possible yeah i don't know if he would actually think there's information that never came out because that might imply that he actually thinks jonah did it which would be a whole other level of delusion no (laughs) i just meant something like some way to track him so that they know jonah's there And then Mm. he could pin it on Jonah. I think he just wants Strike to follow these non-existent clues and point him in that direction. Mm. But yeah, maybe. I get what you're saying. Kind of like whenever they were talking earlier, I think it's when Bristow and Strike first meet and they're talking about the runner and there's two runners, but Bristow's trying to draw Strike's attention over to the first one because- Not to him. (laughs) Not exactly, not to him. So this is like, you know, you were saying earlier, Pools, that, you know, this is all just Bristow kind of- trying to clumsily steer the direction of the investigation where he wants it to go. He's so bad at it. He's so obvious. (laughs) It's like, oh, he's such an idiot. He got really lucky getting away with those murders Mm because he is not a criminal mastermind. Definitely not. All dumb luck. Yeah, it's just really interesting to see in hindsight how Bristow is trying to steer this conversation one way and Strike is going the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. This short phone call is a great example of how these two men are not on the same side at all. We get a description of the hostel where Rochelle is living, and I have to say this next bit highlights the stark contrast between it and Kendergarn Gardens. The utilitarian modern world had encroached 
until it sat huddled and miserable, out of sync with its surroundings, the flyover a mere 20 yards away, so that the upper windows looked directly out upon the concrete barriers and the endlessly passing cars. Oof, sounds depressing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really love the bit in this passage where it describes the building as a contemporaneous cousin of Lula's Mayfair house. And goes through all of the, the little differences that add up to completely different worlds. Two buildings constructed in roughly the same period, contemporaneous, and therefore distantly related and yet so different. It feels to me like a little architectural metaphor for the relationship between Lula and Rochelle themselves. Like we have these two young women, both with rough starts in life, with difficult origin stories, both with mental illnesses. But their lives took such different paths because of the little thing of getting adopted into money and being beautiful. And I know that they're not actually related, but they're sort of spiritually related on one level, right? I just think it's a little neat metaphor using the contrast between the buildings to also sort of point to the contrast between Lila and Rochelle. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I might be talking about nonsense here. (laughs) No, I don't think it's nonsense. I think you're right. And it also reminds me of the comparisons of Richie's nursing home with Betty Fuller's home. Mm -hmm. A different way because there's no relationship between those two. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, she's really good at having the physical space of the books reflect what's happening with the plot and the characters and everything. I love when we get little glimpses into how Strike works and how he thinks. So he's not having any luck with the woman behind the front desk because he knows she's suspicious of him. So he raises his voice so that the man behind her will be able to hear it. It doesn't say that's what he's doing, but it's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And it's fun to read these things because it worked. So the man speaks up and says, oh, you looking for Rochelle? So not Mm -hmm. only does he tell Strike her name, but he also tells her that she's no longer there. Mm. And this might be nothing because it says she came and went, but the fact that she's not there now makes me wonder, well, where is she? Like, how is she providing for herself? But we know that, what is it? Bristow's providing her with a place or? I believe that he's just giving her money and she she used it to get a bedsit or something, as well as uh, an ugly designer jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the question of where she is and how she's supporting herself is an important question. Mm -hmm. It is. Now, Carrie Ann, one of the people who lived in the hostel with Rochelle had this to say, they weren't such big fucking mates. You don't want to believe everything Rochelle says, lying bitch. Mm. Wow. An interesting character. Mm -hmm. Um, She clearly resents Lula and her money and Rochelle's friendship with her. So it makes you kind of question the things she says, but she's not entirely wrong that we can't trust everything Rochelle says. Yeah, absolutely. It does make me wonder what the dynamic was there regarding Lula. You know, the bald man says it caused tension. Do you think it's more likely that Rochelle downplayed her relationship with Lula and maybe talked badly about her or that she boasted it? Mm. Given the way she she describes the relationship to Strike later, I feel pretty certain that Rochelle would have flaunted having Lula as a friend, like bragging about the gifts and the partying. And I could definitely see how that would cause tension in that environment. Yeah, I agree with you. I guess it's just the comment from Carrie Ann that they weren't such good friends makes me wonder if Rochelle would have maybe also talked badly about her to make up for the flaunting. Mm -hmm. Kind of in the same way that Charlotte would do. Like, let's go to all these nice places, but oh, I hate this world and I hate these people, you know? Oh, yeah. You know what? That makes sense to me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. To seem above it and yet clearly yes. also love it. Yeah. Loving it. Yeah. Oh, this bit that <laughs> comes up makes me laugh. So Strike I know what you're gonna steals. Say. <laughs> yeah. Strike <laughs> steals this poor woman's newspaper. I'm like, that is rude, Corman. 
what if she wasn't finished <laughs> reading it? Well, she's finished now. <laughs> she's finished now. Although I can get him maybe out of principle, not wanting to spend money on, on news of the world. <laughs> okay. This is funny because first of all, I was going to put this in our notes and I knew you were going to say something about it. So I just left it. <laughs> I was like, I know she's going to, <laughs> I knew it. Yeah. But actually it reminds me of something that I've been saving to tell you because I just finished reading the silkworm and I found another incident of theft for you. What did he so, steal? Cormoran <laughs> is a kleptomaniac. Okay. Tell me. <laughs> let me pull it up on my phone. Okay. Yeah. So this is when he asks Robin to go collect the dog poop. And it says yeah. when he returned, he was holding a box of latex gloves that he had clearly filched before leaving the SID for good. <laughs> oh my God. He just <laughs> cleaned out their closets. Okay. Sorry. And <laughs> And a clear plastic evidence bag of exactly the size that airlines provided to hold toiletries. So he's oh, got my God. folders, latex gloves, and evidence bags from the SIV. I am wondering what their security is like that he can just walk out with armfuls of these supplies. Maybe he like took a kit bag and just filled it all with shit. Uh, yeah. I'm loving the confidence. He knows I'm going to be a great private detective. I'm going to need things yeah. to handle murders. You yeah, know, it's good for you. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. I'm going to be laughing at the image of Strike just bringing a kit bag to do a shopping trip in the office <laughs> cupboard. <laughs> I think everyone would have just been too scared of him to say anything, you know, who knows? <laughs> Don't ask questions. Oh, that's funny. So after Strike is finished questioning the bald man and Carrie Ann, we get our very first swan reference, which is a single swan bobbed along the Thames beside the far bank. Is Aww. it a coincidence that this is just before Robin texts him for the first time ever? No. I don't think it is. You can't put the words coincidence and JK Rowling together. You just can't. Mm -hmm. It's all deliberate. Yep. Especially not with swans in these books. A hundred percent. Next strike stops for a pint at the blue anchor. And he reads the story from his stolen newspaper about <laughs> Duffield's visit to Leela's mother. But I love the moments where Strike just seems to appreciate his surroundings. It's mm. not the only time he sits to face the Thames or thinks poetically about London. I just love it because... London is probably my favorite place I've ever visited. So I like to appreciate it vicariously through him. Yeah, I too adore London. I've been there twice and it was just gorgeous every time. Mm -hmm. After So after he was fighting off the glooms in the last chapter, it's so nice to see him relax a bit and, and feel some happiness here. The line where he says that he was expected by no one stood out to me. I'm guessing that he hasn't been able to just have time to himself without accounting for it to Charlotte in a long time. So you can feel that sort yeah. of sense of freedom here. I totally agree about feeling the sense of freedom. And at the same time, it also reminds me of the times in Lethal White and Troubled Blood where he's outside a pub in the sunshine with Robin and has that same sense of happiness. So I like thinking that he ends up enjoying these kinds of things with Robin. Yeah. Not that mm -hmm. I don't completely value that kind of quality alone time, but oh, it's yeah. still nice. We just mentioned Strike getting his first text from Robin and mm. this one arrives and it's telling Strike that Duffield's face was on the front page of News of the World. I love to think about how Robin must have either saved his number in her phone or taken one of his cards home, right? Yes. Although she has had to call him to give him his messages, hasn't she? So maybe after a couple times, couple times yeah. after repeating the number a few times, she just remembered it. And as I'm saying that, it sounds impossible to me because I 
have an absolutely atrocious memory for numbers. I can barely mm. remember my own, definitely not my husband's. I have to ask him every time. So, but <laughs> Robin is much smarter than I am. So maybe she's just better at it, you know? Well, if anyone could do it, Robin could. Yeah. I also like how he grins to himself about her texting him. I like to think he's starting to really see things in Robin that he sees in himself. Mm-hmm. The fact that she would text him for the first time ever on a Sunday about the case says that pretty clearly. Miles between them, but they're both looking at the exact same paper and thinking the same mm-hmm. thing at the same time. Yeah. They are on the same page, if you will. <laughs> oh my God. Get uh, out. <laughs> all right. I'll leave. I'm good. I never realized that. You're right. Doesn't that also happen in Trouble Blood after their big fight and they're both watching oh. the same news about the storm, you know? Yeah. I love that. I yeah, love every sense of that. I love that. The sun was warm on his head and shoulders. Seagull's cod wheeling overhead and strike, happily aware that he was due nowhere and expected by no one, settled to read the paper from cover to cover on the sunny bench. Now, I just love the way that this chapter ends and the kind of feeling of serenity it evokes. So good. Yeah. The seagulls calling are, are what give me that sort of reliving a St. Ma's Sunday vibe about this little bit. Although I might be crazy (laughs) saying that. No, I don't think it's crazy at all. The expected by no one also kind of feels like how everything was shut down in St. Ma's too. Mm -hmm. So I, I get it. It's totally the same vibe, the same feeling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Should we go on chapter 10? Chapter 10. Okay. So chapter 10, Strike and Wardle meet for the first time and they discuss the case. Now, before Strike and Wardle meet up, however, we do get another glimpse into Robin's point of view. When Robin had spotted the picture of Evan Duffield in an open copy of the News of the World at a nearby table, she had made a breathless excuse right in the middle of (laughs) one of Matthew's stories and hurried outside to text Strike. Matthew had said later that she had shown bad manners and even worse not to explain what she was up to in favor of maintaining that ludicrous air of mystery. I'm just shocked that she was able to stay awake during one of Matthew's stories. (laughs) I know. (laughs) We can tell she wasn't paying attention if her eyes were wandering over to newspapers on other tables. Yeah, she's probably heard it a million times. Oh, I just I love how it says one of Matthew's stories because it gives me the impression that he probably just has a handful of these stories that he things make him look good and interesting and no doubt he's expecting her to be hanging on his every word but she runs out in the middle because strike and the case are much more interesting to her god yeah so matthew dominates a group conversation by telling tedious arrogant stories about himself as we've seen him do Mm -hmm. and robin is the one who has bad manners Okay, Matthew. I'm guessing that this, though, is the first time she's just completely dropped the act of listening to him raptly and and laughing when she's supposed to and doing that sort of feeding him the lines to make him shine thing. I have to say that feeding him the lines to make him shine thing kind of makes me cringe. Oh, yeah. Big same. Also, I want to put money on these university friends being Tom and Sarah. Yeah, totally. But this whole thing really reminds me again of the line from Trouble Blood where it says she found something she wanted to be more than Matthew's wife. Mm. I know I've mentioned it before, but it just seems like another one of these moments. It's going to take her a long time to figure that out, though. God, we're only at the beginning. I mean, if it were me, I would want a root canal without an (laughs) anesthetic more than I'd want to be Matthew's wife. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have the benefit of looking from the outside in and not seeing any of the good times. We, Mm. We don't know about any of them. Yeah. So it might be easier for us to say, but I'll take the root canal too. 
Yeah. yeah. Now we hear from her internal monologue that Robin is thoroughly annoyed with both Strike and Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> I totally get why she's annoyed with Strike. It would not have killed him to text back and say, Thanks for the heads up. I just saw it too. I mean, obviously Robin can't know that he's trying to create boundaries because of that fly in the ointment, but still. Honestly, it's just rude. Although yeah. to give him the benefit of the doubt, if it were me, I'd have said to myself, well, I'll, call it. I'll text back in a second. I'd put my phone down and then I would immediately and completely forget about it until mm-hmm. like two weeks later when suddenly I realized I never answered and then I feel like a monster. So it's too late. Then I just have to fake my own death and go into <laughs> witness protection. But you know what? Strike's memory is a lot better than mine. So I'm not giving him a free pass. It's rude, Corn. The thing you mentioned earlier about being expected by no one could maybe play into this. I mm-hmm. mean, maybe he just wanted to disconnect, but I don't even believe that. I mean, there's just no reason that he couldn't have texted back at some point other than trying to keep his distance. So or just not bothering to be polite, I guess. There are two short paragraphs here that are back to back. And the first talks about Robin being in bad temper as she walks through Denmark Street and up to the office. And it's followed by a paragraph where Strike is walking around the Statue of Eros. And it says, though he did not know it, Strike was at that very moment passing the scene of the most romantic moments of Robin's life. Mm. I don't exactly know where I'm going with this or what it means, but I like the idea of them not necessarily swapping places, but maybe walking through each other's worlds. You know, what do you think it means? I love this idea of yours of what you said of them walking through each other's worlds really resonates with me. So Strike is doing detective work unknowingly near Robin's personal life. Robin is doing secretarial work and is annoyed that her detective instincts aren't receiving acknowledgement. And then those same instincts are already starting to overshadow her personal life. So everything's just twining together. I don't know. I can't find a meaning in it either, but I think there's something there. Yeah, maybe it's it's that even though they don't realize it yet, their lives are starting to become intertwined. Mm, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd, I'd really love to hear what people think about this and hear other interpretations because I think it's a nice little bit. Yeah, I agree. Strike begins to put together the information he's dug up on D.B. Mac and his interest in Lula. And not only the things that he found online, but he actually goes to check out the club and he's checking out where all the exits are and the cameras are, presumably trying to figure out if D.B. could have left unnoticed, I think. He also mm-hmm. looks at the parking situation around the area which I think is showing further interest into Kieran Kalavis Jones and the whole parking thing. Mm -hmm. I think he's right that he's earned a tea and a bacon roll. Absolutely. Although I'm still not completely clear what a bacon roll is because I just remember being horrified when Robin put ketchup on hers. I'm pretty sure it's just bacon in a roll that's been (laughs) sliced in half and it's maybe has butter too, but it's like the British bacon. It's not our proper crispy bacon right that changes everything oh yeah it's a different kind of bacon yeah i too was horrified by the ketchup just because it should obviously be brown sauce on the (laughs) bacon roll it's much superior i still have no understanding of brown sauce or what it tastes like i've told you it tastes brown but i don't know what (laughs) it's a sauce well if you don't know the taste (laughs) of brown then i just i can't help you i think that's a challenge to our listeners please describe what that tastes like I really want a bacon roll right now. Well, now I can't, I can't want a bacon roll if it's not real bacon now. It's ruined it for me. Well, it's their, their, well, they would say like our streaky bacon is from real bacon, but no, yeah, the Brits are wrong. The Come on, totally wrong. Delicious. Absolutely. 
It says that Shrike is reading an abandoned copy of the Daily Mail, and the article he's reading is about the prime minister being caught on a hot mic calling an elderly voter bigoted. Of course, I had to look this up to make sure it was real. And it is. It's dated April 28th of 2010. So I, I'll put a link to the, the Daily Mail that Strike was reading. Strike is really cementing himself as a newspaper <laughs> scavenger, isn't he? Like, Strike, you don't have to read the shit in the Daily Mail or the news of the world. You can just go buy yourself a good newspaper, but <laughs> He's saving money. Yeah, I, can, I know. I, I kid, I kid, <laughs> but still... I feel like at this point, I should be less surprised when Joe slips in real world events, but it gets me every time. Hmm. It's great. It's so fun. It like cements the books into the real world and makes it feel real, you know, Mm -hmm. just like the locations do. So yeah, I love it every time too. Now, next we have Robin calling strike to give him his messages. First, we have Allison calling to say John's arranged an interview at Cipriani with Tansy Bastigui. And next, Gillespie calling to check on the loan yet again oh you mean the murderer (laughs) (laughs) the very same this line cracks me up strike considered asking her to call gillespie back and tell him to go fuck himself (laughs) now i don't think i've ever mentioned it before but i love him really (laughs) i know it's surprising yeah he's really funny in this moment it always makes me laugh too i think robin would totally call up gillespie and tell him to fuck himself (laughs) if, if strike asked her to but she'd do it in a sort of icily polite professional secretarial language that sounds good on the outside but actually clearly says fuck Mm -hmm. off and she'd be amazing at it but you know what strike wouldn't want to lose the satisfaction of doing it himself i'm pretty sure this is also the first time he ever answers her call isn't it Hmm. why do you think he chose this time to answer is it to make up for ignoring her texts i think so also i think she's starting to grow on him more the fact that she texted outside of working hours about something case related probably had something to do with it i think i think he's just in a better mood and he likes her so he's like oh pick it up and talk to her at this point and strike recognizes here that robin is upset and he assumes it's because he ignored her text so he says to her that he couldn't have texted back because it would have looked funny where he was the thing that's so funny to me about this (laughs) is he says the same thing to matthew and silkworm when they meet and (laughs) matthew thinks it's just some lame excuse which it's not a lame excuse when he says it to matthew that's real but it is a lame excuse here it's so funny (laughs) I am dying laughing at this idea that this is just his go-to excuse whenever he doesn't text someone or call someone, even if it's sometimes true, clearly it's just his fallback. It's just so, it plays up like the mysterious drama and glamour of being a detective so much. And he might not realize it, but this exact strategy totally works with Robin. I don't know. I think he probably does realize it. (laughs) I think he has already seen Robin hanging on his every word and just how Mm -hmm. interested she seems in the job. So I kind of feel like he knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And now I'm just trying to think of how this can translate into him flirting with her in the future. Like he knows he's going to fluster her, but he's going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. listen it is never a bad time to think about flirty strike which by the way i'm already dying over and we haven't even seen it yet well 976 pages that's a lot of room for flirting so i love that strike takes her enthusiasm about looking into duffield further and just runs with it actually this whole next section just makes me love him so much yeah well we'll see about that said strike deliberately ominous And listen, Robin, if another death threat comes in, they usually arrive on Mondays. Yes, she said eagerly. (laughs) File it, said Strike. 
He could not be sure. It seemed unlikely. She struck him as so prim, but he thought he heard her mutter, sod you then, as she hung up. Him being deliberately ominous, Robin's sod you then, I just love it all. Yeah, Yeah, I love it too. (laughs) I love that he clearly likes her excitement about the case. He probably hasn't had anyone to share this kind of excitement with in a long time, right? Because we know he couldn't talk to Charlotte about it. And this also feels a bit like that mild showing off, which I also love. And that last line, it's so funny. I love the idea of her being so prim as being challenged. And I I imagine that he kind of likes it. Yeah, more than kind of, I'm guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Just like the way he likes it when she gets annoyed and calls him Strike. Yeah, he likes her. So next, Strike heads to the Feathers pub where he meets Wardle for the first time. I like how Strike notices Wardle before Wardle notices him. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like Strike is kind of assessing him before Mm -hmm. he approaches him. So it says... They, meaning a few women, were pretending not to know the only solitary drinker, a handsome boyish man in a leather jacket who was sitting on a high bar seat beside the nearby window, was examining them point by point with a practiced eye. Strike bought himself a pint of Doom Bar and approached their appraiser. Examining them point by point with a practiced eye? Gross, Wardle. Come on, dude. You're literally married. Yeah. Does not give a good first impression to me this remark about wardle having the kind of hair that strike envied and other men is interesting because he's never really struck me as particularly self-conscious and we don't really hear about him being like jealous of other people so that kind of stood out to me i don't think it means that he's self-conscious i mean i envy robin's hair Right. So I think we all have things that we might feel self-conscious of, though, especially if if it was something he was teased about as a kid, which it says he was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Strike gives Wardle information about where the stabbing suspect is that he got from Shanker. And I got to say, I'm still not loving Wardle here. I mean, he laughs at Strike a couple of times. It's described as patronizing. What do you think? I don't like Wardle at all in this scene. I don't like the way, as Ken's pointed out, he's staring at women so blatantly and for so long that Strike notices it repeatedly and the women notice it as well. It's just disrespectful to his wife, who he mentions like four times in this conversation. And I find it creepy. Like, okay, these particular women might want to attract his attention, but do I really think he limits his staring to women who want this? Like how often does he do this to women who aren't interested in attracting his attention, right? Or maybe creeped out or made uncomfortable by men staring at them. I know that I might be the only one who thinks so and that people might think I'm making a big deal out of it. And that's fine. But personally, you know what? It skeeves me out and it put me against Wardle for a long time. I don't think you're the only one. I did read it as these women wanted his attention and I don't know if I would go as far as to say that he would harass women who were, weren't interested. But would he like stare at them? Well, I think that would count as harass. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I kind of think Wardle is an all talk and no action guy. Mm-hmm. I, I do agree with you that it's disrespectful to his wife and I didn't like it either. I agree with you that he's all talk, no action in a lot of ways, maybe. Lindsay, you were just talking a moment ago about how Strike is giving Wardle information about where a stabbing suspect is. And in this exchange, we get a nameless mention of Shanker as the guy who gives Strike that information. I guess it's just 
funny reading this knowing about who it is in hindsight because mm-hmm. like when you first read this mm-hmm. you have no idea who he's talking to but now you do you want to read the quote too i've just given you the name of the tenant and half the postcode how about trying a bit of detective work honestly it's not that hard for wardle to do all you'd have to do is run a name through a database and have an answer in like three seconds honestly it's kind of annoying to me that he has to remind wardle to play fair yeah wardle is coming off here as a bit of a lazy cop as well as arrogant and skeevy and it doesn't bode well for him in terms of Lula's murder because no matter how thorough he claims they were now we're seeing this laziness and we're maybe doubting him a little bit yeah it's a great writing strategy absolutely next we have Wardle and Strike beginning to go over the CCTV footage what stands out to me here is that Wardle asks if Bristow is still going on about the CCTV footage and the runner he says that Bristow was obsessed with it so do you both think that he had kind of unsuccessfully tried to steer the police investigation towards Jonah and failed? I hadn't considered that before. Uh, It does seem plausible to me. He might have seized on it as something that would draw attention and suspicion away from him if he was nervous Mm -hmm. in the wake of the murder. Yeah. But yeah, trying to set Jonah up early seems likely since he knew there was a will. Next, they change subjects to Tansy Bastigli's testimony and Wardle is none too kind when talking about her. I gotta say, I don't love the way he's talking about Tansy here. I don't think that Tansy is the greatest or anything, but he says she was still going strong with the hysterics when we got there. And oh, it's just so familiar, isn't it? Like that the woman would be reduced to hysterics and emotion when Mm. we know that this is a woman who had just been abused by her husband, almost to the point of hypothermia and saw a woman pushed to her death. He also later says that Bastigui couldn't have been happy that his wife had shot her mouth off. It's just not a great look here for Wardle, in my opinion. It just really rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, you are not the only one. The way he talks about her, combined with the disrespect and the staring at women from earlier, it left me with a serious bad taste in my mouth about Wardle and how he sees women. It made me wonder how it is for Vanessa working with him, if that misogyny sort of bleeds over into how he treats his female co-workers or not, but uh, I'd be curious to hear about her perspective. My impression is that he might not act this way with Vanessa. Maybe he thinks this is, and I hate to use this phrase, but maybe he thinks this is locker room talk. Yeah, um, Ugh. Yeah, exactly. Maybe he thinks that because Strike is the man that he's going to engage with him in this way. But, Mm -hmm. you know, notice that Strike never takes the bait. Love that about him. Like when Wardle compares Tansy to a rake with two tangerines, Strike doesn't laugh or thinks it's funny. He thinks how obvious it is that this isn't the first time he's made that joke. I love that he doesn't engage with that kind of trashy locker room talk. We love a man who respects women, even when they're not around to hear or see it. Like when he's sarcastic at Polworth for being so gross about his wife. He's like, oh, she would love to hear this. She'd fall in love with you all over again. And people wonder why we have book crushes on him. (laughs) Speaking of Tansy, I also think that just the police's explanation of her just, it leaves too many questions left unanswered. And I think it comes down to them dismissing her as a hysterical woman And also because it went against Carver's theory, they made such a huge mistake with her. And it makes me happy to think that Strike made them look so bad because of it. Absolutely. Agree. I mean, I don't know if I should keep going on about this, but Wardle even talks about Wilson with a trace of condescension. Like, don't come after Wilson. (laughs) We are team Wilson. We are team Wilson. How dare you? (laughs) Uh, Is he just insecure or what is it? I get the impression from the scene that Wardle just really likes to hear himself talk. Like he's that kind of guy. God, can you imagine if he and Matthew ever met? (laughs) They would either love each other or hate each other. You know? (laughs) Strike makes a comment, and I don't know if I'll call it a clue, 
But it definitely shows that he's a better detective than those two idiots. He <laughs> says, I'm interested in the middle flats, which is just, you know, Ooh. ding, ding, ding. Like you said in the last chapter, Ken's, it almost seems like he's really starting to put things together, doesn't it? I definitely think that at this point, he's figured out the middle flat is the only possible way someone could have escaped past Wilson and the Vestiguis if they were super lucky with the timing, which Bristol was, right? So yeah, yeah, I think he is interested in that middle flat for a very good reason. So together, Strike and Wardle go over the suspects one by one. So we have D.B. Mack, Freddie Vestigui, Derek Wilson, and Evan Steffield. Ultimately, he's ruled these four men out. And while he's correct, it's hard to feel like they've really done a good job. Mm-hmm. I just get the feeling overall that Wardle kind of enjoys having a bit of power over Strike right now. He couldn't shake him with some of his snide comments that he made, you know, like about rugby or strikes weight, but he's still not agreeing to give him the file unless it's his tip comes through. So, so annoying. I know we've been hard on mortal and I know that a lot of people love him. I think what I find interesting while reading it this time is that I don't remember disliking Wardle this much before. And maybe that's because he becomes more likable later on. So I wasn't thinking of this interaction as much, but it'll be interesting as we go through the rest of these books to see if that changes. I did just read one of the early chapters of Career of Evil where Shrike calls Wardle first after getting the leg. And he says that it's because he's the friendliest police officer towards them. I guess there is something to be said for someone who didn't turn on him because Shrike made them look bad. So maybe he is really mostly all talk, but his actions are somewhat loyal and fair. Mm. We'll have to see how it progresses. For me, his antagonism, at least in this book, kind of makes sense. I mean, you kind of have this nobody private detective coming in and double checking all your work that you feel like you've worked hard on and like, you know, hey, we've already gotten to the bottom of this. Mm -hmm. Having somebody bring that back up again probably feels a little insulting. And plus, Wardle doesn't really know just what a great detective strike is yet. And I'm inclined to think that he gets more likable later on because while he doesn't like his work for the Met being shown up by strike, he can still kind of begrudgingly admit that strike is a good detective and respects that at least without getting his ego completely involved in it i can definitely see why he would feel that way right now that does make sense because strike is coming at him telling him that he's wrong yeah i agree you can see why he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder And then he drops it, eventually becomes a little bit yeah. more likable. And it, it is nice that he is the one who is friendly to them and treats them well after all mm-hmm. of this as well. So yeah. he might not be all bad. We're just seeing a, a not great side of him right now, I think. Unlike Carver. Yes. <laughs> all right. So the last chapter of the episode, the last chapter of part two, chapter 11, strike interviews Bristow. Ursula May and Tandy Vestigui. Now, I have to say, as a woman who loves to thirst over strike, the opening of this chapter really does it for me. Shocked. (laughs) Right? Shocked, yeah. (laughs) It was the first time that Robin had seen strike in a suit. He looked, she thought, like a rugby player en route to an international, large, conventionally smart in his dark jacket and subdued tie. It's weird. She doesn't describe his clothing very often, does she? Except when he's in the suit. Yeah. I think so. Wasn't there that time where he was dressing up as like a like oh a yeah, yeah. Or like something? a yeah down and out. Yeah. I love Robin's response to that. Um, is that, that a deliberate look? look? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that strike suit would look better on the floor of her bedroom <laughs> than on him personally. <laughs> Okay. So we're starting to see more of the spark of curiosity about Stripe from Robin after he mentions being invited to Jack's birthday party. 
it's so great that she keeps her questions about his family to herself, but she can't help herself when it comes to the case. Mm -hmm. She asks how he got Wardle to talk to him and finds out that he was in Afghanistan with the military police. Military police did not tally with Matthew's impression of a charlatan or a waster. Like, damn right, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's funny that Robin's instincts about Strike's background being ex-police were pretty spot on. I'm just so annoyed that Matthew would call him a charlatan. I'm once again reminded that we are just at the beginning of four very long (laughs) books where Matthew acts like a complete asshole all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's so, so frustrating. So we also learn that three of Strike's half-siblings contacted him while he was in Selyoak. We have Gabriella, Daniela, and Al. Al's the only one that visited, and then Gabby and Danny were the only ones that sent flowers. It's interesting to me that he refers to them by their shortened names because it implies familiarity, but... Probably they just always go by Gabby and Danny. So that's how they signed their card, maybe. Yeah, I think that's probably what happened. I feel like we would have known if he had not only met these two, but if there was that kind of level of intimacy to be called, yeah. you know. There's a mention of Charlotte's sense of humor here in relation to her imitation of Al being awkward around him when he was visiting. Mm. Her sense of humor just seems cruel and mean-spirited, to be honest. I'm not really sure what Strike sees or likes about this. Me too. I think this has to do with the whole us versus the world thing. In this particular instance, I can see Al's behavior as maybe being uncomfortable for Strike while they're in the hospital. So she's kind of rallying behind him here to where it would almost feel like support, if that makes sense. I think he's so immersed in this us versus the world thing that like with a lot of things, he's not seeing it for what it is. I could even see her using it as a kind of manipulation by making fun of people in her own class that maybe Strike doesn't like or feel so distant from as a way to show him that she's with him. She's on his side. He even thinks later that Charlotte said she hated that world, but wonders if that was a lie too. You know what I mean? That is a really interesting insight into her humor that I hadn't thought about it that way. I too was just like, it's so mean-spirited and nasty. But what you said totally fits with her joke about Prince Harry and Lethal White too, right? Mm-hmm. Denigrating someone in the upper class, pretending she doesn't care, aligning herself with Strike. Uh, I like your analysis here. Spot on. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And it does fit with the Prince Harry thing too. Mm. I think we've talked about it, not on the podcast really, but in other places, how Robin is funny without being cruel. And I don't know if I think it'll happen because it's not really something that's highlighted, but I I wonder if he'll ever notice that. I love that Robin's humor is often actually just poking fun at Strike himself. (laughs) Yeah, It's not mean, but it makes him laugh at well. It's like taking the piss, banter, teasing, Mm -hmm. flirting. I love that too. I think Sam had said to us that if Mm -hmm. you're making fun of someone, it means you like them. It's a good thing. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It's affectionate. Very different from Charlotte. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then Shrek arrives at Cipriani where he meets Bristow, Tansy Bastigui, and her sister Ursula May. I do not like Ursula, and there's just one bit in particular that really soured my opinion of her. Her tone and expression would have been appropriate had Strike been a waiter who had just thrown aside his apron and joined them uninvited at the table. Honestly, why is she even there? The free wine, I'm guessing. (laughs) Or uh, I guess to probably keep an eye on her sister, you know, make sure she doesn't embarrass herself again. How's she going to keep an eye on her sister with all that free wine she's drinking? Well, you know. Do one eye on the wine glass, one eye on the sister. Mm. You got two eyes. You're fine. There's also a moment a little later when Strike asks Ursula a direct question and it says, 
He guessed that it would needle her if he crossed what she evidently saw as an invisible line between them. She did not think that sitting at a table with her gave him a right to her conversation. And these kind of moments just fascinate me because you have to imagine that after solving Lula's murder, after catching two serial killers, that people like Ursula may may wish they had been a little bit nicer to Cormoran Strike. You know what I mean? It's just a little satisfying. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And Tansy's not great either though is she i mean no the way she assumes strike has no authority in this situation and that he'll just have to agree to keeping everything off the record like bristow said it's just Hmm. we know that bristow himself also sees strike as someone he can purchase and then direct where he wants maybe tansy's taking more cues from bristow than we think or maybe they're cut from the same cloth in regards to being rich assholes yeah i think she just kind of looks down on him yeah, that too. Were either of you intrigued at all by the talk of Bastigui wanting Lula in a film and following her to that weekend getaway? Mm. It's a giant red herring, but it does provide some possible motive, I guess, for a man like Bastigui to be turned down to not get what he wants, you know? Yeah, I was very unsettled by him following her on that trip. Mm-hmm. It's sus it's behavior. Creepy. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. creepy. It's and creepy. That, that's a good way to describe it, unsettled. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was definitely intrigued by that the first time that I read it I'm pretty sure that Bastigui was on my list of possible suspects yeah and they also talk about how Bastigui went to the Bristos and wanted to make a film of Lula's life Bristow says that he wished he had heard him out because he wants to find out about her earlier life without calling this a clue I guess this is important because it once again shows Bristow's focus on her biological family or how he wants to put a focus on them, even if he's just doing that for Strike's benefit. Well, I've just realized that Bastigui visiting the Bristows might have been the inciting incident that made Bristow decide to go hire Strike. Like we know it happened a couple of weeks ago, maybe a bit longer. What if Bristow is nervous that Bastigui's research would turn up Jonah and that Jonah might then try to make a claim on the estate? Maybe he wanted to get ahead of that. And then the idea to frame Jonah sort of took root and he went out to go get that done. Yeah. If he hadn't been trying to push the police onto Jonah, like we talked about earlier, then he may have been in the clear. But if someone was digging up information on her past, then that could be dangerous to him. Mm -hmm. I guess we should just be glad that he never invited Jonah to a rooftop party or something. You know, I would steer clear of any rooftop parties that Bristow throws. That's not a great idea. I'm good. Yeah, don't go to any high places with Bristow. (laughs) Ground floor only, no elevator shafts nearby, nothing. We're we got our feet on the ground here. There's a moment where Bristow seems to almost give himself away during Tansy recounting the moments before Lula's death, where it says Bristow set down his glass looking nauseated. You have to wonder how Bristow is feeling, really feeling here, because Tansy is repeating the words he said as he sits right across from her. It has Mm -hmm. to be a tense moment for him, especially a little later when Strike asks her if she'd be able to recognize the voice if she heard it again. He's got to be nervous. Yeah, that's a good catch. He must be nervous for himself. There's also this moment where Tansy criticizes Wilson for choosing to go check on Lula first instead of running up the stairs to confront the killer. She says, bloody fool, if only he'd gone upstairs first, he might have caught him. It's interesting because on the one hand, she might be right. But on the other, I think it shows Wilson's compassion. You know, what do you guys think? 
Yeah, I agree with you about the compassion. His first instinct was to run to Lula because if mm-hmm. she'd survived the fall, he could have provided some kind of first aid until the ambulance got there, right? That would have been the priority. This is one of those instances I think of hindsight being twenty twenty. Could Wilson have caught Bristow if he had run upstairs? Maybe. Yeah. But if there was a chance Lula was still alive, I don't think Wilson could have lived with himself if he had left her there and didn't do something to help. And then she sort of dies needlessly. So he's extending the same compassion to Lula that she did to him. Yeah, we're still Team Wilson. Yeah. Team Wilson. Yeah. Team Wilson, 100%. But yeah, so much of this interview is just big yikes. And like the racist way that they talk about Rochelle is just terrible. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely is. Yikes. I'm not going to repeat any of it. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> the one thing about Rochelle, though, correct me if I'm wrong, is this when Bristow finds out that Strike knows who she is? Yeah, that he knows her name, that he's figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. He, Brissa's probably fuming inside. And fuming that Tansy brought her up to, or that Tansy's yeah. talking about her. Yes, yeah, exactly. He's, he's yeah. Pissed. <laughs> and also important, although it doesn't seem like it at the time, but both women seem to enjoy gossiping about Allison to Strike. And mm. this is how Strike learns about the Conway Oates situation. Yeah. So put this a, turns out to be important as well. Yeah. Put a pin in that. So when Tansy says, I've thought and thought about how the killer got in, and I'm sure he must have followed her inside when she came in that morning because of Derek Wilson leaving his desk and being in the bathroom. She means the middle of the night morning, right? Mm -hmm. Which is incorrect, but the morning makes me think of when the killer actually did sneak in. Yeah, I think she she means that morning is in that very late night. I mean, it feels like odd phrasing because if it was me, I'd have still been in night mode, you know? Yeah, me too. Um, it's not morning until either I've gotten some sleep or, you know, the sun is, is sort of thinking about rising. But I guess Tansy is technically correct about it being morning and then also wrong. But in another way, about a different morning, right? Yeah, maybe it's putting it in our heads the morning, you know? Maybe. I like that, that, you know, she is actually right about the killer coming in the morning, but just not the morning that she thought it was. Yeah. Strike notices that Bristow's hands are shaking as the interview ends. Do you think we're meant to interpret some of this body language as nervous tics, kind of like Quirrell's stuttering in the first Harry Potter book as a way of misdirecting and taking our attention away from how guilty he seems? Oh, okay. First of all, I love the parallel between Bristow and Quirrell. It's one I forget about a lot, but totally fascinating that both villains of both book ones have this nervous demeanor as a shield almost, you know, it's, it's a mask that causes us and other characters to feel sympathy for them. It's like, oh, poor Bristow is so mistreated by everyone. And poor Coral was attacked by a vampire, you know, but really they're hiding behind that. That is such a great parallel. I love it. It's definitely misdirection though. We're led to believe that he's being bullied at the office, right? Ursula talks about the Conway Oates situation and that Bristow is getting the short end of the stick when really it's his fault for embezzling. Right, Right? honestly. And after Cyprian May shows up, his hands are shaking and he seems agitated, but he could be agitated because Strike has found out about Rochelle or the question about recognizing his voice or just all of it. Or his embezzlement being found out as well. He's probably quite nervous about not being able to put that money back in. Yeah. Strike then leaves. And I was very pleased when I first read this, that Strike recorded everything on his phone. I Hmm. love that her demand that he do things the way she wanted was not accepted by Strike. Good for Mm -hmm. him. Although I would very much appreciate it if someone in the UK who knows the law on this can tell me if that's legal. Hmm. I'm just very curious because I wasn't allowed to do this 
or a lot of things that they do when I worked in private investigation. So I'm just, I'm just curious what the law is. I'd love to know. I'm curious as well. I would love to talk to an actual private investigator and be like, okay, is this legal? Can you do this? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But also Ken's, you mentioned earlier that Bristow sets his cup down and looks nauseated while Tansy's talking about Lula's final moments. It says here when Strike listens back that you can hear Bristow's cup. Do you think this is drawing our attention back to Bristow and his behavior and his guilt? I think so. I mean, the more and more I look into it, it definitely seems like she's trying to draw our attention to how he's reacting when certain subjects are brought up. And he doesn't like when you're talking about Rochelle because he's not supposed to know about Rochelle. Yeah. So yeah, totally. We talked in the last episode about Strike's instinct for the truth. And we see that again here where he knows that Tansy is both telling the truth and lying at the same time. He thinks of a quote from Adler, which is, a lie would have no sense unless the truth were felt as dangerous. Mm. I just think that despite all her flaws, there are a lot of people who are going to owe Tansy a pretty big apology at the end of this. Mm -hmm. She's going to have a great big I told you so moment. Yeah, she is. And she deserves it. Yeah. I had to look up this quote from Adler because I, I didn't recognize it. And I was thinking like Irene Adler from Sherlock Holmes. But no, this quote is from Alfred Adler, an Austrian doctor and psychologist from the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh, he was a colleague of Freud's, but he broke with psychoanalysis to create his own school of, of what he called individual psychology, which is a sort of holistic form of psychotherapy that sees the individual as a whole and considers their environment and, and the role the environment plays in their psychology. I just found it really interesting that Strike knows this quote, because this means that Strike has, for some reason, read the work of this obscure psychologist. I mean, maybe it's just obscure to a layman or maybe just to yeah. me because I'd never heard of them. But what is his degree in? <laughs> I'm desperate to know. You think that if he studied psychology, he would have told Robin, right? Yeah. 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 But besides his degree, what I find so interesting about what you just said is viewing someone as a whole and considering their environment. Yeah. And Strike is the only person who does that with Tansy. Mm -hmm. He looks beyond her lies, her drug use, and everything else that's unflattering to find this whole person and the whole truth. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a perfect person to quote from when thinking about Tansy Pastigli. Yeah, super appropriate. God, he's so well read. He knows so much. <laughs> and that's the end of yeah. the chapter. Yeah. And the part, I'm so excited for the next part because we finally get another epigraph. I was so just going to say that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I know. I was going to say one more thing. Next episode, we're going to get the Vashti chapter and the green dress. An epigraph and the green dress. It's going to be great. It's going to be a great episode. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for another episode, this time covering chapters one through four of part three. If you enjoy what you've heard, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss, you can always email us at scfilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of The Strike in Ellicott Files.